Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Again, great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I'll just keep it real with you guys. Uh, This morning, I have more content to give you than I have time to give it. Uh, So the responsible thing for me to do would have been to trim that content down to time. The thing that I did instead was not that. So uh, I was emotionally attached to everything on the page, and so I just vowed to myself to talk extra fast. So that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. I said that in the 9, and I did not, in fact, talk any faster. So I'm going to do my best to actually do that here at the 11. Um, but if you're good with it this morning, we are just going to jump straight in. Straight in. <laughs> I don't even know how to say words. That's how much content I have. Uh, so we are going to jump straight in this morning. Uh, real quickly, though, if you were not here with us last Sunday, uh, just for context, we kicked off a series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, we started it off by talking about the recurring problem with humanity, namely that all of us have decided to reject God's definition of right and wrong, and instead we have chosen to define right and wrong for ourselves on our own terms. And we said that that is the problem underneath every other problem in our world right now. I don't have time to defend that statement to you this morning, but if you want to know more about that, go back and grab the podcast from last week. That was the big idea. So what I want to do this week is try to talk a little more in depth about where we get those functional definitions of right and wrong from. How do we actually piece together what we think is right and wrong in contrast to God's definition? I want us to talk about our conscience, this mechanism in our mind and hearts that helps us discern right from wrong action. And specifically, all my cards on the table this morning, I want to try to show you that our consciences may not be nearly as objective as we think they are. That's where we're going this morning before we're done. And for that, we are going to take a look at Romans chapter 2. Now, what we're about to read, what you just heard read by Nicholas a moment ago, is actually just sort of an aside. It's sort of a a detour that Paul makes in Romans chapter 2 en route to his main point. That's why probably in a lot of your Bible translations, it's actually bracketed. It's in parentheses in the text because it's it's not even his primary point. It's a point that he's making en route to his main point. But even though it's brief and even though it's an aside in the text, I think it tells us so much about this innate sense of right and wrong that we have in our hearts and minds as human beings. I think it tells us a lot about our conscience and how it works. So take a look with me. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. Indeed, when Gentiles, which here in context is basically just shorthand for people who don't yet know God. People who don't yet know God, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law 
are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Okay, so here's what's happening. Here's what Paul is laying out in those two verses. Paul is observing that even people who do not yet know God, who don't yet follow Jesus at all, that those people, at least at times, still feel led to do the things that God tells people to do. And, that, and often, they also feel bad about doing some of the things that God tells people not to do. So just for example, people who want nothing to do with God, who do not follow Jesus, are still often led to do things like adopt, which is a beautiful practice that God invites his people into. People who don't know Jesus are still led to give lots of their money away to people in need. Plenty of non-Christians actually feel guilty after being cruel and unloving towards other people. These people may not know or may not agree with the specifics of what God instructs his people to do, but still they possess this innate sense of right and wrong in their minds. They have a conscience and that conscience at least sometimes lines up with God's perspective on right and wrong. And Paul says that this gravitational pull on their minds and their hearts is evidence that in some sense the law of God is written on all of our hearts. That's his point. I think this also explains why people who will claim to have no explicit moral code will still say things like, oh, well, I did that because it felt like the right thing to do. Logically speaking, that's kind of an odd thing for them to say. Since according to their own worldview, there technically isn't such thing as a right thing to do. But since they functionally believe that there is, they say th things like that. To Paul, all of this is evidence that God exists and that he has made all human beings in his image with an essence of their nature imprinted on their minds and their hearts. And the word that Paul uses for that phenomenon in the passage is the word conscience. So with that established sort of at a 30,000 foot level, I want us to now walk through several assumptions that the Bible makes here and in other places about our conscience that I think have profound implications for how you and I tend to think about morality. So first assumption the Bible makes, you have a conscience. You have a conscience. The argument that Paul makes here in Romans 2 is simple. All of us, both people who know God and people who don't, we all have a conscience. God hardwired into every person this innate tendency to discern between right and wrong, acceptable actions and unacceptable actions. Uh, when you were little, and you realized that it was kind of fun to pick on other kids at school, but it also made you feel bad when you saw the hurt on their face. That was your conscience at work. It's why my seven-year-old feels bad and often confesses the worst thing he did at school that day, the moment I pick him up from school, in tears sometimes, because that's his conscience at work. This is a very important part of how God made us. Conscience is a gift that God has built into our very nature as human beings. Uh, plants don't have consciences, to state the obvious. So a few weeks ago, we had our landscapers pull down this wall of kudzu that had kind of taken over a part of an outside wall of our building. That kudzu did not feel bad about scaling our wall and potentially causing damage to our building. It also didn't feel emotionally dejected after we tore it down. 
Like it wasn't mourning over that. That's not how it worked. A cactus does not feel bad about injuring your hand when, it, when you touch it. That's not how it works because plants do not have consciences. It doesn't, they don't have perceptions of right and wrong. They don't feel shame or empathy or any of that. But you and I as image bearers of God, we do. We do feel those things because we're made in God's image. We were built with an onboard morality detector as human beings. Doesn't always keep us from doing what's wrong, but it's always there functioning to one degree or another. We as a society actually have a word for people who seem to have no conscience at all. We call them sociopaths because we understand that normally, in normal circumstances, human beings have functioning consciences. Your conscience doesn't determine what's right and wrong, but it does serve as a warning system for you. Now, we may or may not use the word conscience to describe this phenomenon. We, we might use language like what seemed right to me or, or going with our gut or something along those lines in terms of language. But what we're referring to there is what the Bible calls conscience. You have a conscience. But second point, second assumption that the Bible makes is that your conscience is corrupted by sin. Your conscience is corrupted by sin. So although our conscience exists and functions to a certain degree, it is not at all an ultimately trustworthy source of determining right from wrong. It's broken by sin, which makes it heavily biased, at least an awful lot of the time. We see this in the Bible in places like Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Jeremiah says that, that our heart, what we might call our conscience, is desperately sick. It's deceitful, in other words. Sin has broken its ability to function like it should a lot of the time. So, so a metaphor might help here. Uh, our consciences, because of sin, are kind of like a malfunctioning smoke detector in your house or in your apartment. Sometimes they beep when there's smoke nearby, like it should. Other times, it beeps, but there's no smoke nearby. Other times, there is smoke, and it doesn't beep. It's a malfunctioning smoke detector. That's the effect that sin has on our conscience. It, it might lead you to believe that things that are not acceptable to God are totally fine for you to do, or vice versa, that things that are acceptable to God are actually wrong or ill-advised to do because it's malfunctioning uh, on a more experiential level. This is why sometimes we do things in life that genuinely feel like the best thing to do in the moment, and then 10 years later, we look back on that and go, why in the world did I think that was the right thing to do? Why did I think that that was a good decision to make? What you're experiencing there is a consequence of what Jeremiah says here. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says that our, our hearts, our gut, our moral instincts are sick. It doesn't mean that they're always wrong, but it does mean that they aren't trustworthy as an ultimate source of authority on how we should live because they're broken, they're corrupted by sin. The Bible even says elsewhere in the New Testament that our consciences can actually become seared, that we can actually develop a complete disconnect from right and wrong in certain arenas of our life. Our, our smoke detector, in other words, can just stop working altogether in certain respects 
This is why people can say or think things like, well, I know that God says this is wrong, but I don't feel conviction over it, so it must not be wrong. That, that's the evidence of a seared conscience. That's the outworking of a conscience that has been seared by sin. It doesn't mean God is wrong. It means our consciences are broken and not working like they should. But sin is not the only thing that impacts your conscience. Additionally, next point, next assumption that the Bible makes, your conscience is shaped by your culture. Your conscience is shaped by your culture. So this is the assumption that leads Paul to say things later in the book of Romans, like do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. He, he says that because he knows the tendency is for our conscience to be shaped by the society around us, by our culture. Now, I want us to spend a good bit of time on this one this morning because I think it's really important. And to be honest, I think sometimes it tends to get overlooked in the way that we see ourselves. Our, our consciences, as they stand right now, have been informed and formed and shaped by the society that we live in. And quite often, we do not even realize the extent to which this has happened to us. We just assume that the way we think about right and wrong is normal, that we came up with it all on our own. But listen, every culture that has ever existed has blind spots that tend to go unnoticed by the people living within it. Different people in the world think very differently about right and wrong than you and I do as modern Americans because they were born at a different place or at a different time and place than we were. So let me try to prove why I say this. This phenomenon, the power of a particular culture to shape people's consciences, I think is actually easiest to see in some of the most negative, extreme situations. So think about a few historical examples with me. Somehow, an awful lot of people less than a century ago in Nazi Germany felt like the right thing for them to do was to exterminate entire ethnicities of people. And somehow, they reconciled that belief with their conscience. So people that thought that in Nazi Germany were not walking around going, we know this is pure evil, but we're gonna do it anyway. They had actually convinced themselves in their minds and hearts that this was the right thing to do. They were deceived by the society that they lived in at the time. Going back a little further in history, people here in the US came to the conclusion that it was actually morally right and expedient to displace an entire Native American population from their land. And then later convinced themselves that it was acceptable, that it was morally right to kidnap millions of Africans and bring them here and forcibly enslave them once they were here. They rationalized those decisions in their consciences. Going back a little further in human history, many cultures on the other side of the world convinced themselves that it was actually morally correct to offer their newborn babies on altars as sacrifices to foreign gods to gain a better life as a result. Their conscience led them to believe that that was the good thing to do. And there are multitudes of different examples that we could go back and talk about throughout human history along those lines, where large segments of society did horrific things 
because they were convinced in their mind, in their gut, in their conscience that those were the right things to do. Now, as I said, those are obviously negative, extreme examples that we just mentioned. But if you are thinking critically, they should be a little bit terrifying to you. Because if you hear those examples from throughout history and you think to yourself in turn, man, everybody who lived before us was just really evil and stupid and unenlightened. I'm very glad that we are not like that and that we have no cultural blind spots whatsoever. If that is your response, you are entirely missing the point that I'm making. The point is not that a few specific cultures throughout history have had cultural blind spots. The point is that every culture has cultural blind spots. The point is that all of us do, including our own present culture. A lot of why you think the things that you think about right and wrong is because your society has trained you to think those things and to value those things. Uh, Maybe another way of thinking about it would be this. Just ask you a question, how many of you would say that your grandparents, generally speaking, are wonderful, delightful people, but still that they hold a belief or two that you find really embarrassing and outdated and wrong? And man, I hope they never say it in public to anyone, especially while I'm around. I won't make you raise your hands, but I would imagine that's a lot of us that can identify with that experience. We have that perception sometimes about previous generations. Okay, but I've got to ask you, do you not think that your grandkids will feel precisely the same way about you? Or do you think you are finally the generation that has arrived? (laughs) We finally got it all right. No improvement needed from here on out. We nailed it all. Do you see what I'm getting at here? I think we should be very concerned about what cultural blind spots we might have right now that people outside of our immediate cultural context will not share with us. One day, people will also look back at us and go, how did you guys go along with this? How did you just assume that this was okay? In the same way that you and I would go up to a slave owner 200 years ago and go, how how in the world were you okay with this? Why did you think this was okay? Future generations will, I guarantee you, like it or not, think similar things about you and I. Because our gut, our conscience, is not neutral. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has been informed and formed and shaped by the time and place in which you live. The gift of having a conscience is that we have an onboard sense of right and wrong as human beings. The curse of having a conscience is that we tend to believe that our conscience is always right. And that may not be the case. Proverbs famously says, there is a way that seems right to a man, and the end of it is the way to death. So what I want to do next, if you'll allow me, 
is try to give you some specifics on this. I want, I want to try to show you some specific ways that your conscience may not be as developed as it needs to be. But in order to do that, I do need to sort of bombard you with some concepts from the world of ethics and moral psychology. So full disclosure, what we're going to cover for the next little bit is not directly out of the Bible. It's not authoritative in the way that most of the stuff we talk about here on Sundays is. But I personally have found it incredibly helpful for analyzing why I believe some of the things that I believe and how some of that could be creating barriers in my mind and heart to the things the scriptures teach. So again, this stuff is not from the Bible. Feel free to take it or leave it, but I think you might find some of this helpful as well. We'll move through it as quickly as we can. So there is a professor and moral psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. He has devoted his professional life to studying how different cultures around the world develop their sense of morality, or we might say their conscience. And particularly, he has spent time studying how different cultures think about morality in very different ways from other cultures. He, he wrote a book several years back where he sort of summarized and laid all of this out called The Righteous Mind. That's the name of the book by Jonathan Haidt. In that book, based on decades of research, he lays out what he considers to be five primary categories for how human beings think about right and wrong. So moral categories, in other words. Um, it might help to think about these sort of like taste buds. So our, our taste buds help us experience food and help us decide what types of things we like and don't like. But not everybody's taste buds function the same way. Certain people think that certain things are delicious that other people think are disgusting and vice versa. Uh, I know of no other reason that a restaurant like Stock and Barrel can exist next to a restaurant like Subway and both of them stay in business on Market Square. I don't understand. It must just be that some people's taste buds are very different from other people's taste buds. People's taste buds are different from each other. We all know this. So the categories that I'm about to list out for you are like taste buds, but for our sense of morality. They, they are different ways that we evaluate the world around us and evaluate certain decisions and then come to conclusions about what is right and wrong and how to live as a result. But what's interesting is that every society across human history and across the world has certain taste buds that they are strong in and others that they're not as strong in. There are some things that you and I think about morality, think about right and wrong, that are not shared by people that live on the other side of the world, and vice versa. So for the next little while, I am going to paint with some fairly broad brushes about culture. I'm going to speak in generalities, and I hope you'll give me some leeway there. But these are what Haidt calls the five moral foundations, ways that human beings across history and around the world think about right and wrong. So here's the first moral category. It's what we might label care and harm. Care and harm. This is when we know something is right because it properly cares for other people, and we know something is, is wrong because it disproportionately harms other people. So something is wrong, in other words, if it hurts somebody else, if it creates a victim within this framework. So the virtues in this category are things like kindness and empathy and compassion. The greatest wrongs or sins in this category would be things like cruelty or harshness or insensitivity. So if person A does something that cares for person B, we assume that person A is right. 
If person A does something that harms or hurts person B, we assume that person A is wrong. That's the idea behind this framework. So, question for you to consider. Would you say that American society as a whole tends to feel strongly about this moral category? Do we care about caring for people and not harming people? Is it functioning well in our society as a whole? I would say it is. I would say, I would say we tend to feel really strongly about this category. We are very concerned about caring for people and not harming people. This is definitely a priority in our modern society. Here's the second category. Fairness and cheating. Fairness and cheating. So using this moral taste bud, we tend to think that something is wrong if someone is not being treated fairly by it. So this is where we get ideas like equality and justice and rights. That the greatest sins here would be things like cheating or oppression or injustice. So from, from racial and ethnic groups insisting on being treated equitably to a kid taking a toy from another kid to why you want to beat up the vending machine that stole your dollar and didn't give you a drink, this is, this is fairness and cheating at work. This is the framework of fairness and cheating. We think that things should be fair. So same question here. Would you say that the average American cares about things like equality and justice and rights? I would say overall we do. Now, we don't always agree on, or see eye to eye on whether that means equal outcomes or equal opportunities. There's some debate there, and I'm not saying we always act in accordance with this belief, but in theory, we very much believe as a society that people should be treated fairly, that we should treat people equally. Third category, this one's going to require some thinking. Third category is that of authority and subversion. Authority and subversion. This is when something is wrong because it goes against or subverts legitimate authority. So respect for authority, whether that's a parent or a boss or a government or something else, in this framework is considered important. Authority is important. The belief is that there should be some amount of deference to those above you or older than you simply because of their position, because of who they are. And to dishonor or disrespect or disobey those people is often seen as morally wrong to do. So some friends of mine once visited an Asian American church. While they were there, they stayed in a bunch of different members' homes, and they started noticing that in every single member's home of this church, nobody had a TV. Like not a single person. TVs were nowhere to be found in their homes. And, and the members of this church were relatively wealthy people, so they didn't think it was an issue of income, so that, but TVs were nowhere to be found. And they eventually asked the people that they were staying with, my friends did, they said, hey, why, why do none of y'all have TVs in your houses? And the answer they got was, I kid you not, quote, well, our pastor told us he doesn't have a TV, and the Bible says that we should follow the example of our pastor, so we decided to not have a TV either. Excuse me, what? what? But why, though? That's not a reason in most of our minds. I would imagine that at least to a lot of us, something like that feels overly deferential to authority. But that's because most of us have been more formed by Western thinking than we have by Eastern thinking, where they put a much higher emphasis on authority than we do. 
Now, I think another determining factor on whether or not you value this moral category highly is probably your age. So in general, even people here in the States who are, say, something like 50 years old or older tend to place a higher emphasis, higher priority on authority than younger people tend to. But on the whole, at sort of a popular societal level, I would say that we are probably not quite as dialed into this moral category as we are the first two, would be my argument there. All right, fourth category is what we might call loyalty and betrayal. Loyalty and betrayal. This is where you perceive something to be wrong if it is disloyal to a person or a group that you are in relationship with. With. So the assumption here is that if you belong to a group or to a relationship, you should do things that benefit that group or relationship and not do things that betray that group or relationship. So the greatest sins here would be to be a traitor or to be disloyal in some way, shape, or form. This one, I would argue, is also much stronger in collectivist societies and other parts of the world. Here in America, probably not as much. Now, I would say that probably certain subgroups of our American society do value this more. So I would say that communities made up of people of color do often value this category more highly than primarily white communities do. People who are a part of the military also tend to place a much higher priority on the idea of loyalty and betrayal. But overall, at a societal level, again, at a popular level, I would not say that this category is as strongly felt in our minds and hearts in modern Western society. Maybe I'd even put it this way. Uh, a person from a truly collectivist society that does value loyalty and betrayal highly would tell most Americans that we do not value it very highly at all. Maybe that's the way I'd put it. In fact, I would argue that in some ways, we here in America effectively devalue loyalty to a group that we're a part of. Because we tend to teach people that the most important thing in life is them individually. You need to chart your own course. You need to be yourself. You need to become the best version of you. And if a group that you're a part of or a relationship that you're a part of is keeping you from doing that, we functionally believe that you actually have a moral obligation to reject that group, to abandon that group and to chart your own course forward instead. Uh, if you pay attention, this is actually the narrative behind probably 70% of our movies that we watch here in America. It's certainly the plot of every Disney movie that comes out. From us telling Moana that she has to leave the island to go in search of who she is, to Ariel wanting to leave the ocean behind to be where the people are, to Kung Fu Panda leaving behind the family noodle shop in search of Kung Fu glory. We, should, we could go on and on with examples, but this is almost the storyline in every single Disney movie. And the reason that those plot lines are compelling to us as Americans is because we do not tend to value loyalty very highly. We tend not to place a high priority on this. If, if we did place a higher priority on loyalty, we would be bothered by those movies instead of inspired by them, right? The majority of Americans tend not to place a high value on loyalty to a person or to a group. We're not especially strong in this category. All right, lastly, let's cover this last one and then I'll circle back and kind of explain why I think all of this matters. The last moral category we might call sanctity and degradation. 
sanctity and degradation. So in this category, some things are wrong because they are degrading to participate in. The belief is that there are certain things in the world and in life that that are meant to be holy and, and elevated and special and unique and set apart. And therefore, certain actions are wrong simply because they take those things that are meant to be uncommon, that are meant to be unique, and they treat them as common or they corrupt them, or they degrade them. So think, for example, of a Muslim not, la- not allowing a copy of the Quran to touch the ground or other common surfaces. The, the belief there at work is that there is something special, something holy, something unique about the Quran that should not be degraded by having it touch common ground. But I'll just go ahead and tell you, you've probably felt this already, this moral category is probably the most foreign to us as modern Americans. We don't tend to think in these terms, at least a lot of the time. But we do have faint echoes of it, even if we don't fully realize that that's what we're feeling in the moment. So in Jonathan Haidt's book that I mentioned earlier, he details a psychological experiment that he and a team of researchers once did. They gave each subject in the experiment a hypothetical scenario for them to consider. And just as a warning, this is gonna get a tad weird for a moment, as research does sometimes. The, The scenario that they gave people in the experiment to consider was as follows. An adult aged brother and sister decide that they want to sleep with each other. They both consent to it, they both enjoy it, and they use multiple forms of birth control to ensure that no pregnancy results from it. They also only do it once, and they agree not to tell anyone else about it. That's the scenario. The researchers then asked people in the experiment a question. They asked, was what this brother and sister did morally wrong? And every participant in the experiment with out exception, immediately answered the same way. Yes, without a doubt, what they did was wrong. But when asked why it was wrong, most of them struggled to articulate a reason. Well, it could lead to birth defects if they get pregnant, okay, but there's no chance of them getting pregnant. Well, it's, it's exploitative. No, they both wanted to participate in it. They were both adults and they both enjoyed it. Well, incest is just wrong. Okay, sure, but why is it wrong? Well, it just is. I just know that it is. Okay, that statement, it just is wrong, I would argue is the lost remnants of a sanctity degradation framework, speaking. It's the law written on our hearts. The fact of the matter is that there is something unique, something different, something special about a familial relationship from other types of relationships. And there's something about sex in that context that actually contaminates the relationship. It actually corrupts it. And even though we cannot articulate a concrete reason for why it's wrong in this situation, pretty much everyone agrees that it's wrong. We have almost a visceral response to even the consideration of this scenario, and that's because we still have a sense, even if it's distant and unfamiliar to us, of this moral framework of sanctity and degradation. It's because we do still believe in this category at least a little bit in certain scenarios. Okay, let me give you a much more real-life example of this category. 
constantly, we will have engaged couples that we do premarital counseling for here at City Church. And it will become obvious at some point during the premarital counseling that this couple is sleeping together prior to getting married. And every time we start at the same place with them, we try to be understanding, we ask if they know what the Bible teaches about sex, and specifically that sex is reserved for the context of marriage. And almost always, the couple's response will be to say something like, yes, we know what the Bible teaches about sex, we understand what the Bible teaches about sex, but we both want to sleep together and it's not hurting anybody, so how can it be wrong? If they're honest, they'll ask that sort of question. And listen, within an exclusively Western individualistic moral framework, that is an incredibly understandable question to ask. But do you hear the words being used in that defense? To say, well, we both want to sleep together and it's not hurting anybody, so how can it be wrong? Those are the words of someone who believes that fairness and cheating and care harm are the only categories there are for determining morality. If we both want it, fairness, cheating, and it's not hurting anybody, care harm, it can't be wrong. But what if there are more moral categories than that? What if in this situation, sex is actually the thing that is supposed to be special and unique and holy to God? And what if in this scenario, taking sex outside of its intended context and treating it as if it is common and mundane and no big deal is actually morally wrong to do? What if by engaging in sex outside of a marriage context, you are actually degrading and treating as ordinary what God meant to be special and unique? I think that is a question that is very much worth asking. Now, I would imagine that with the last three categories I mentioned, the ones that aren't as common to us here in the States, many of us would say that the reason we don't ascribe to those moral categories as much is because they are potentially dangerous. I think that's the language we would use. So it's, it's dangerous to think that submitting to authority is always right. It's dangerous to elevate loyalty to a person or a group above all else. It's dangerous to think that certain things are morally contaminating because it could lead to unnecessary shame. I think that's what our pushback would be. And here's the thing with all of that pushback. You're right. All of these moral categories on their own, including the two that we are inclined to believe in, are incomplete on their own. The the point isn't that we need to exclusively always believe in any one category. The point is that we need all of them to build out a full, robust framework when it comes to morality. The point is that there is more to morality than just harm and fairness. And if we don't acknowledge that, I think we end up with a very anemic, incomplete understanding of right and wrong as human beings. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that, our mini-session on moral psychology is officially over. You can take a breath. Thanks for hanging with us on all of that. Here is the reason that I took you through all of that. Because in two weeks, we are going to begin working our way one by one through the Ten Commandments in the Bible. And chances are, as we work through them, 
Some of the commands that we read are going to make a ton of logical, rational sense to us. We're going to hear commands like, do not murder, and we're going to think, yes, I agree, I would like to not be murdered. And I think it's harmful when people murder other people, so I'm on board with that commandment. I think that's a great command for us to live by. We're going to hear other commands like, do not steal, and we're going to think, I also agree with that. It is unfair and unjust to steal from other people, so we shouldn't steal. Good thinking, God. Good job on that rule. I agree with you there, too. In other words, we're probably going to agree with the commands that appeal to the moral taste buds we already have, the ones we're strongest in already, inherently. But then we're going to arrive at other commands on the list, commands like honor your father and mother, commands like honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, Commands like, do not use the name of God in vain. Don't misuse the name of God. And when we read some of the commands like that, we're going to think to ourselves, well, I don't know about that. Bare minimum, we're not going to feel like those commands are nearly as important as some of the others are to follow. And, and sometimes we might even think that some of these other commands are, are unnecessary or, or, dare I say, potentially harmful to obey. But listen, that's because those commands are assuming moral frameworks that we may or may not yet possess, that we may or may not be strong in, that our society has not taught us to value, or sometimes that our society has even taught us to devalue. So in those moments, we have a decision to make. We could assume that God's definition of morality is wrong that it's misguided, that it's underdeveloped, and that our own sense of morality is better than his. That's one option. Or we could ask if maybe God has a more developed sense of morality than we currently do. We could ask if maybe he has a more complete understanding of right and wrong than our modern Western society currently does. I would argue that is the far more healthy response to take in that situation, certainly as a follower of Jesus, but even just as a human being. I would argue that it reeks of arrogance when we operate as if we already know everything there is to know about the world. When we operate as if our understanding of morality is already as complete as it needs to be. And I would argue that it looks a lot like humility when we are willing to keep our mind open to new ways of thinking about the world. Just as a reminder, for followers of Jesus, humility is actually a requirement. So all of this leads us to our final point, inarguably the most important of them all. Final assumption the Bible makes about all of this is that the Spirit realigns your conscience with God. The Spirit realigns your conscience with God. Part of the role of the Holy Spirit laid out over and over again in the Bible in the life of a follower of Jesus is this, to continually align and realign our conscience with what is true. To convict us of the various ways that we are out of alignment with the kingdom of God, that are at odds with his definition of right and wrong, and to realign us with him.
So look at how Jesus puts this. This is John 16. We'll put it up on the screen. John 16, starting in verse 12. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples at the time. He says this. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit aligns our conscience with God, with the truth as we follow him. So, so listen, this is very important that you understand. Ultimately, it is not that we just need to get a little bit better at some particular moral categories. Ultimately, that's not the point. Ultimately, the point is that we need the Spirit of God residing within us to guide us into what's true. And that is precisely what Jesus died to make possible. In that same chapter, John 16, Jesus tells the disciples that it's actually good for them that he goes away, i.e. to die on the cross. Because, in his words, once that happens, he says they will not need him to teach them and answer all of their questions. They will have the Holy Spirit residing within him to do that at all times. He says it's actually better that he goes away. That is one of the many things that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus made possible for us is the ability to have the very spirit of God residing within us who can continually align and realign our conscience more and more to be like God. Not, not just to make us agree with his definition of morality, but actually to help us want the things that he wants to help us desire the things that he desires, to help us become the things that he wants us to become. All of that is made possible by the good news of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again from the grave, which is why every week as a community, we go to the tables throughout this room and we remember all of that. We commemorate the, the full, unhindered access that we have to God's spirit made possible through Jesus' death on the cross. We remember his body and his blood, and we remember that because of that, we have been given, as followers of Jesus, a new heart and a new mind that is, in the language of the scriptures, being renewed daily in the image of its creator. So if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you want to become a follower of Jesus this morning, you're invited to participate with us as we respond to what Jesus has made possible for us. Let's pray.